First Peter, chapter one, verses three through five. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, It is your word, Lord, that directs us through life. And we pray that you would give us wisdom from it. In Christ's name, amen. title is An Imperishable Inheritance. I, uh, I can be very easily disappointed uh, in life. I can choose the wrong lane on the road, get stuck at a traffic light behind somebody that's moving more slowly, more slowly than me, and I'm annoyed. I can get stuck in the wrong lane at the grocery store. And I think in part I pride myself on picking the right lane on the road in the grocery store. And then I'm doubly annoyed because my pride is hurt. Uh, My contentment can vanish very quickly. So now uh, some disappointment, though, that we experience can be legitimate. You know, we can uh, just fall short a little bit of something that we dearly want and we can be disappointed for that. I remember when I was uh, uh, signing up for the military, I took a bus from my home up to Cleveland and a fellow that I was talking with on the bus said that he wanted to get 120 on this test. And I said, why is that? He said, well, if you score over 120, you get a sign-in bonus. And I didn't know that. And uh, so I saw him that next day after we'd taken the test and I asked him how he did. And he said he got a 117. So he was very disappointed. Now, I'd gotten over a 120, but then I never got a sign-in bonus because I didn't know about it. And I signed a form that day telling them that I didn't need it or didn't want it, I guess. But anyway, I was disappointed. He was disappointed. We were both disappointed. So uh, sometimes you might have an idea that you've suggested be refused. I get disappointed in meetings at work all the time. I mean, you know, I, I sometimes I think, think that I know it all and I'm making suggestions and nobody listens. And uh, it's just, it comes easily to me, disappointment does. So now disappointment calls us to examine ourselves, uh, regardless really of the cause, whether it's, whether it's something trivial that you should know better or something valid. You know, you really are disappointed and for good reason. But both of them call us to examine ourselves. And that's because we need to regain our contentment. We need to work through our disappointment. Uh, A few months ago, a commercial came on TV that I really liked, and I mentioned it to some of you. Um, In it, we're on a city street, and you see a couple walking down the street, and then a woman walks out of a store, and she catches sight of herself in the glass, and she starts looking at herself, and she's very pretty, and appears over her head in Gothic letters, 
vanity. And then this couple walking down the street, the guy's here and he looks over and you see him ogling her and it appears over his head, lust. And then his girlfriend who's over here looks at him and she's got evil in her eyes and she says jealousy. And then someone else walks out of the store with this little cute black razor phone and then all of them, it says envy. And, and so uh, there's another there's a reason I like this commercial. These are part of the seven deadly sins. And there's another commercial that's a twin to this one. And this is where this guy is laying on this couch and it says sloth and he's munching away on snacks and it says gluttony. His roommate comes into the apartment. He's all angry and it says wrath. And then the roommate's friend comes in with another razor phone and then it says envy. And so now I know all seven of the deadly sins. I can never remember them before. (laughs) All I have to do is remember these commercials. And there's another reason I like those commercials, though, especially that one on the street, because it shows us how easily we slip from sin to sin to sin. Uh, Once we've let our guard down, it just it's there and it's attacking us. So I was uh, listening to a book on tape a few weeks ago called uh, When Character Was King by Peggy Noonan. And she wrote about Ronald Reagan and she uh, he was uh, he had only been president, I think, for about two or three months when he was uh, shot by, I think, Hinckley was his name on the streets. And uh, President Reagan's personal bodyguard, the senior uh, uh, agent on his detail, was interviewed afterwards, you know, by the FBI agents that were investigating it. And they said, why were you out of place? And he knew he was out of place because when they exited the building, his mind wandered and he walked over to the car ahead of President Reagan. It was weird. He said he never remembers anything like that occurring before. And then suddenly he gets to the car and he's thinking, what am I doing here? And so he'd allowed his guard to go down for a couple seconds. And what's funny is in later interviews, he says it's like that was supposed to happen. It was like, you know, I was supposed to go over to that car. But as soon as he realized what he'd done, he started walking back to join the president. And that's when the guy shot him. But, uh, It's just interesting how easily our guard can be let down. Um, There is within us our will. And so we have our will that is to control and guard our intellect and our emotions. And yet when that will is defeated, the enemy gets in very quickly. And then once the enemy is in, the enemy does damage. The Bible tells us in first Peter in this book, chapter four, verse seven, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Uh, First Thessalonians, uh, Paul says, let us watch and be sober. You know, in the Old Testament, you hear of the uh, sin being a lion crouched in the streets ready to devour you. And so what I wanted to do is share some personal experience about this, this uh, disappointment and envy and how our wills can sometimes fail us. Twenty years ago, I worked at Lockheed Missiles in Space, and I worked with a man by the name of Ralph Barletta. And uh, there were a bunch of us that were fairly young at that point. I'd say at least five, six, seven of us that kind of became friends. And so we would go out to lunch regularly. And uh, Ralph was married, and he had his baby boy just a couple months before we had Rachel. Um, back in those days, I loved to play practical jokes. And uh, one day at lunch, he was telling me that he had not... Uh, sent a paper to this doctor at Ohio State University. He'd just gone to a conference and there's a famous doctor in AI called Dr. Chandrasekharan from Ohio State University. And he'd met Ralph and Ralph had said that he would send him a uh, a copy of his machine learning paper. 
So he tells us at lunch the day before that he hadn't done this. So the next day I get the guys that we were at lunch with and I said, come with me. So we went into my office and I called Ralph. I said, hello, is this Dr. Barletta? This is Ralph Barletta. Do you work with Lockheed Missiles in Space? Do you know who this is that's calling? And he said, is this Dr. Chandrasekhar? No, this is Rodney Swab. (laughs) He swore and hung up the phone. And then another time I annoyed him, uh, a salesman had come and our manager had sick to the salesman on Ralph and he had a copy of his business card. And he was again at lunch telling us about how this salesman won't stop bothering him. And so I made like 50 copies of that guy's business card, cut them all up and I hid them all through his office. And uh, and I and I asked him a week later, I said, have you found them all? Because he kept finding them. He said, I think I did. I said, no, you haven't. I had them on the curtains when he'd open his curtains they'd flutter down. I had them. I'd thrown a bunch of them in his file folders. I mean, they were everywhere. So I know he hadn't seen them all before he left. Now, I left. He left. Uh, I went over to NASA and uh, worked there for four years. And then I worked for a year in Phoenix for uh, Inference Corporation, a small software company. And then I came here. That was like uh, 13, 14 years ago. Two years ago, I was at my desk. And I thought, I'm going to see if I can find Ralph on the Internet. So I look him up. He's the CEO of the company that I had been a consultant with in Phoenix. He owns a million dollar home in Marin County, California. He owns a vacation home in Lake Tahoe. And I tell you, my will was defeated. It was off by the car, you know. And so I was very depressed. And so I think I talked to a couple of you about that time. Because I really needed to understand this. Something had happened to me that shocked me. And so I uh, kind of examined myself to see what had affected me so much. And I realized that it was envy in part. And yet it was disappointment in large measure. Disappointment in myself that I was not successful like Ralph. And so I had to work through that. I had to, you know, uh, think through good things for Ralph. You know, I wanted him to be successful. And yet I had to also... Uh, mine that experience for flaws in my character so that I could improve my character. Now, all of this prepared me for what came next. And that was, I was at NASA for four years, as I said, and I worked there for a fellow. And it was the first boss I had that was younger than me. I was about 30 and he was 26. He was uh, getting his master's degree at at, uh, Stanford. Very, very uh, uh, energetic guy. He was Jewish. His name was Monty Zwieben. And he was like a King David, I swear. I mean, when I looked at Monty, I thought this is what King David would look like. You know, long, flowing, black, curly hair, beard and mustache, small, bright eyes, very intelligent, always energetic, always going everywhere. And uh, we had a lot of fun. I I worked for him on several projects. And uh, yet last fall, I got a magazine in the mail and here he'd authored an article. And what's funny is a couple of years ago when I looked up Ralph, I tried to look up Monty and I couldn't find him on the Internet. But that's because I was looking for him via the white pages, you know, like, you know, finding addresses and stuff. Didn't see him at all. I thought maybe he'd gone to Israel. Well, uh, I was looking in the wrong place because I read this article and it talked about him having founded a company. And so I just went onto the web and typed Monty's Weaving. Boom. He founded a company in 95. He been fabulously successful, sold it to PeopleSoft for millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, developed another company uh, that then it was worth over a billion dollars after at the dot-com crash. 
And then I was joking with some people here that he's such a loser, he lost like half of his wealth in the dot-com crash, you know. So he was only worth like $400 million then. But now, of course, the dot-coms back up, so I'm sure he's worth a lot more. But uh, I was better able to handle Monty's success than I had been Ralph's because, you know, really, when I heard about Ralph, I was devastated. But by that time, it was like, you know, I was happy for Monty. And as a matter of fact, I was to the point where I was really wanting to pray for Ralph and Monty, you know, that they would not find happiness with the success that they'd achieved. So that's kind of where you need to be. Some of you might be familiar with this story. Let me share you another thing that talks about envy and disappointment. Um, it's a it's a story that went around years ago, but it's about Michael Jordan and Bill Gates. It's a comparison of the two. Michael Jordan makes over three hundred thousand dollars a game, about ten thousand dollars a minute for his for the game he plays in with his millions in endorsements. He makes about two hundred thousand dollars a day. And so then they go through all kinds of examples about what that is. You know, a three minute egg, you know, he makes like a thousand dollars, all this silly stuff he can he can save up for a for an accurate sports car in like you know 10 hours. So at the end of all this, though, it says that he'll make more than twice as much as all U.S. past presidents for all their terms combined. However, if Michael Jordan saved all of his income for the next 250 years, he'd still have less than Bill Gates. Nerds rule. So that was the that was the that was the the story. You know, it's like you might be a jock, but nerds rule. So uh, I, I remember at that time that I that I saw that story. I contrasted Bill Gates' wealth with my lack of wealth. And what I, I wanted it to be something concrete, you know. And so what I did is I thought, OK, if I walk down the hall here and go to the machine and buy a soda at work, what is that like to Bill Gates? And it's him buying a $500,000 home. So he can buy $500,000 homes like I can buy $1.25 Pepsis out of the machine. That's remarkable. I mean, you really have to, that boggles the mind. But what do envy and disappointment have to do with the text that I read about our imperishable inheritance? Well, before we address that, let's talk a little bit about inheritance. Um, the Bible has a lot to say about inheritance. It's a popular topic with God. The word appears uh, 213 times, inheritance. And then inherit, the root with all of its derivatives, appears 273 times. It appears more often than the word save, if you can believe that. And save appears in multiple contexts. But about 90% of these occurrences are in the Old Testament, and half of those are in the first six books. And that's the Pentateuch plus Joshua. And so you can understand why, because that's all about the land being divided up, the promised land that they were going to come into their inheritance. So it also talks about Levites not getting any inheritance. The Levites didn't get anything. Their, their portion was God. In the New Testament, we have Christ on the streets teaching. And at one point, a man cries out, teacher, make my brother divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus responds, who made me judge and arbiter? over you. And then he tells a parable about the man building the barns, about, you know, having a bumper crop and tearing down his old barns, building up these new barns. And he says, you know, your soul shall be required of you this night. And so it shows that all of this is due to God and we must give credit. There's the story of the prodigal son, how he wants his inheritance early. He can't wait for his dad to die. He's impatient. And so he takes his portion and goes off and squanders it. There are many parables involving money. As a matter of fact, I think Pastor Kaiser mentioned that like over half mention money in some way. And so God is very practical in how he chooses to illustrate his points to us. 
many of us have lost parents in recent years. I mean, I've talked to a lot of you. I lost both my own, and I know some of you are now going through that. Um, my father died in 2000. My mom died in 2004. Uh, inheritance can be complicated for the executor or executrix especially because you have to uh, find a lawyer, file all these papers, write all these letters, find the creditors that are owed money, uh, and you are a... Uh, fiduciary trust in this regard. You must do this well. So uh, even now, three years after my mom's estate has closed, I still have somebody trying to get money out of me. And I'm like, no, aren't getting any. Ain't any to get, but not only that, but you don't deserve any either. You know, they, people just go after anybody for money these days. So uh, along these lines too, uh, Tabitha and I, just yesterday after this was all wrapped up, we went to see the movie, The Ultimate Gift. Has anybody seen that yet? The Ultimate Gift? I really recommend it. It's a very good movie, and it's, and it's pertinent to this. But uh, the real thing about inheritance is all the family issues, again, especially for the, the uh, executor or executrix, because they have to deal with these demands from family and, and the oversight, and sometimes family isn't very kind in how they treat the executor. Um, in that story that I mentioned earlier about the barns being taken down, the very last verse says, uh, you know, when your soul is taken from you, then whose will these things be? And that's kind of the question that, that's asked of all of us on this earth. You know, what are we laying up wealth for? So now let's uh, explore the text a bit. So far, I've just been telling stories. So we need to get into the word. I'm going to basically walk through about six or seven phrases in our text. Um, verse three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. He has begotten us again. And so this is Peter talking to fellow believers who have been born again. And God did it once, he did it again. He has begotten us again to a living hope. A living hope. Now, why would he use the word living hope? What does it mean? How does that differentiate itself from just normal hope? And the answer is, you know, just like they teach you in school, you know, you look for the answer in the question. And so uh, he has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so you have those two words right there contrasted, living and dead. And so this living hope is pointing at the resurrection. It's pointing at heaven. It's pointing at the fact that, hey, Christ died and returned. So we know there's something else. We've always heard about it. The Sadducees denied it, you know. So, I mean, it was significant in this day to know that Christ had proved that there is something after death that we're waiting for. And that's what Peter's getting at here. There is a resurrection from the dead. Heaven is real. Heaven has come down to you. Heaven has returned. The next phrase is in the next verse. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled. Now, who's Peter writing to? Who was Peter? To whom was the apostle Peter the apostle? The Jews. The Jews. And he was writing, if we go back to verse 1, he was writing to pilgrims of the dispersion. And then these cities, Pontus, Galatia, it's all across Asia Minor. It's all across modern-day Turkey. He's writing to various groups of Jewish peoples that have been dispersed. Now, they've not necessarily been dispersed recently. They could have been dispersed for generations, but they have all gone out there. The apostles have spread the word. As Paul said, they've preached to every creature under heaven. And so Peter is writing to the believers in all of these places. 
these people have been cast out of their inheritance. And the inheritance for the Jews, as I mentioned earlier, is a big deal. You know, God regarded it as a big deal. So the people did, too. I read a book years ago called A Long Obedience, uh, written by Eugene Peterson. The Long Obedience is the story of the Psalms of Ascent that were sung by the Jewish people as they walked to Jerusalem for their festivals. A few weeks ago, Pastor Kaiser mentioned that the Jews partied a lot. How many weeks? Does anybody remember how many weeks they spent? If they went to every festival, it was enormous. I mean, it was like like a dozen weeks or something like that, that they'd be partying. And so uh, on these walks, these many walks to and from Jerusalem, the people would sing and they would sing these psalms, these 15 psalms from 120 to 134. And uh, these believing Jews that Peter's writing to had abandoned that. Now, they had been forced out of it originally, but now they essentially abandoned it, too, because by believing in Christ, they have been shunned from their Jewish Jewish roots. So these people know what it means to lose an inheritance. You read now, we get the Voice of the Martyrs monthly magazine, and you read about how the Muslims, when they convert, are treated. You know, they are cast out of their homes. They're cast out of their towns. They're shunned by their society. We uh, have the same thing. The same challenge is is faces us when we try to uh, convert Roman Catholics because they have such a strong culture. Even if you can get them to believe things out of the Bible that are inconsistent with Roman Catholicism, they cling to that because it's their family. It's their neighborhood. It's their history. It's everything about them. And yet the Judaism of Peter's day, I mean, it's like Roman Catholicism on steroids over here. You know, it's exceedingly intense. You've got these people that are just embedded in their culture. And so Peter's writing to people that understand what they have lost with that inheritance. And so he's writing to tell them you've got something better. What you've given up is nothing compared to what you're gaining. So it also mentions how it's defiled. You know, the Romans now are all over Israel. And so that that inheritance that God had given them has been defiled. Uh, you know, years ago, uh, the pastor taught about how Antiochus Epiphanes, you know, had de- defiled the altar by having the pigs and then all, all that wickedness. Now, this does not fade away. So, again, it's permanent. It's not going to be like the inheritance that you had and that is now gone and that you had for a long time before faith longed to go back to because you wanted to have that restored. This one will not fade away. It is imperishable. And how can that be? Again, in the next verse, or in that same verse, it's, it's reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God. And so it is the power of God that keeps that inheritance safe for us. And what's interesting here is that this inheritance is reserved for us um, to me, it seems like this is saying that when God created the world, he set aside our inheritances for us as a trust. He foreordained us to life and to life in heaven with him. And so it seems to me that not only is he saying that I have a treasure for you in heaven. Jesus said that. Remember, there are many mansions. It's as if it already exists. I don't think that's yet to be created. We all have a place in this. Those that leave this earth that are 
uh, adopted sons and daughters of God will go to their place in heaven. He has it already set aside. That's a beautiful picture. And it is, in verse 5, it says, ready to be revealed in the last time. So this inheritance that we have, the will has not yet been read, so to speak. And so we yet wait for it to be revealed exactly what this inheritance will be. We know we have a down payment of it. Scripture talks about that. We have been adopted and that the Holy Spirit has sealed us, but we have been sealed as sons for that inheritance in heaven. So now we have that waiting for us. So how should we then live? To steal Francis Schaeffer's phrase, uh, should we shun earthly work and experience and things like these? No, we know that. We know that's not the case. God has created this world for us. We dare not treat it as if it is unworthy of that. And so, no, we do not shun that. As a matter of fact, I had to work through that back in 03, I think it was. We were going to go to uh, uh, Orlando, Florida for Junior Olympics so that Rachel could compete in uh, Taekwondo down there. And I was thinking, do I really want to spend the money that's necessary to go to one of these amusement parks? I thought, you know, it's just money and the money goes out and then what do you have for it? Boy, am I glad I did that. Because we went to Universal Studios. We had a, I, I sleuthed around on the net and found the best deal, I think, that was available. And we got to go there, I think, three or four times for the price of what people would normally pay for one or two. And we had a blast. Got, got the pictures to prove it. So uh, I think that you have to work through that, though, because there's, a, there's this kind of frugal aspect in us, especially in Christians, to just think, oh, no, you know, every penny not doing this or not doing that is wasted. But I don't think so. There are many experiences that I would love to have on this world, in this earth, before I die. Um, a friend at work that I, that I really love, he's a Roman Catholic, um, not a very good practicing one, but uh, still, I dearly love him. He's a good guy, and, I, and I'd love to get to where I'm really sharing the gospel with him. I mean, he, he, he knows my faith is very powerful. He knows I am sold out to God, and yet we've just never had quite that talk that you need to have. But he went to New Zealand in January with his new wife. They vacationed down there for their honeymoon. And I thought, boy, I'd like to go to New Zealand. You know, I'd like to go to Australia. I'd like to see Tasmania. I'd like to see a Tasmanian devil. I'd like to go to the Great Barrier Reef and, you know, be able to swim in the beautiful water there. Um, I don't think I'd want to drop out of a helicopter onto a snow-capped mountain like they do up in Alaska and snowboard down the mountain. I think I'd die. Not necessarily a bad thing, but still. Um, this July, we're going to California. And all the many times we've gone to California to visit family, I've never taken the kids to see any of the Redwood Parks. And so J.O. this year is in San Jose, and Mike is going to compete, and we're going to go down and hit the parks. And on the way back, we might stop at the Grand Canyon. Anybody know why? Anybody hear the news this week? There's a skywalk that's 4,000 feet above the canyon. You're on glass. You walk out over glass 4,000 feet above the canyon. I think that would be cool. It's very expensive, though, so I don't know if we'll do it. But it would just be great to have that experience. And so I think God has created us with a desire for this. But, of course, that we're not to be entirely satisfied with that. He's also created with us with these holes. So now what's the point? What's the point about the envy, the disappointment, the inheritance, and what I've been talking about as far as earthly experiences? The point is that you must always maintain your heavenly perspective. 
You can't ever let that slip away from you. You can't ever let your will drop its guard in protecting you from temptation. And I want to share a couple of stories that are from the late 1800s. There was a man by the name of Russell Conwell. At 19, he enlisted in the Union Army. At the time, he had been a student at Yale College in Connecticut. Let's jump ahead 20 years. He's obviously been out of the service for a while, but he was a soldier. He became a traveling journalist. He became a lawyer in Boston. He became a minister in Boston. And then he became a minister in Philadelphia. People came and sought him out because they'd heard that he was a powerful orator. And so now he's a minister in Philadelphia. And at the age of 41 in 1884, he agrees to teach a student in the evening. And so the very first time this student appears on Thursday night, he brings six of his friends. So now he's got seven students that he's teaching. It's the founding of Temple University in Philadelphia. This man was so good of a speaker and so good of a teacher that all these young men just flocked to him. And so this university was founded around this one individual. He is famous for a speech that he delivered 6,000 times before he died in 1925. Does anybody know the name of the speech? It's called Acres of Diamonds. And it actually stems from his early job as a traveling journalist. He went to Arabia and he heard a story about this sultan. And let me tell you two of the stories. I won't tell you the story about the sultan, but it's interesting. You should read it. It's available over the Internet. But I'll read you two stories, one about a uh, young man from Massachusetts and another about a man from uh, Pennsylvania. This man from Massachusetts was kind of similar to uh, Russell's own experience. He grew up in Massachusetts and he went to Yale College for school. He studied mines and minings and, and mining, and they paid him $15 a week during his last year to be essentially a TA to help students who were having trouble. When he was about to graduate, they offered him $45 a week to become a professor. He went home to his mother. He was an only child. And he said, Mother, I won't work for $45 a week. What is $45 a week for a man with a brain like mine? Mother, let's go out to California and stake out gold claims and be immensely rich. Now, said his mother, it is just as well to be happy as it is to be rich. But as he was the only son, he had his way. They always do. They sold out in Massachusetts and went to Wisconsin, where he went into the employ of the Superior Copper Mining Company at $15 a week. <laughs> Although he had the promise of the company that he would have a share in any mines he discovered, to which he appears to have discovered none. So now, he sold his farm in Massachusetts, his homestead, and the farmer who had bought the homestead had put in potatoes and he had dug out the potatoes and put them in a big basket and he was taking the basket into the house. Well, the basket's bigger than the gateway. And so he he gets down on on his bottom and he squeezes this basket through and he looks up and there under the post in this stone fence is something that's shining. Built into the post of one fence was an eight inch square block of natural silver worth one hundred thousand dollars. And this uh, Russell Conwell says that here is a man trained in mineralogy who leaves his home in Massachusetts to seek his fortune, never finds it. And he had given up a home that had a block of silver built into the, one of the posts that as a boy, he walked past it all the time. And it's as if the block was saying, here am I, here am I, take me. But he just didn't have eyes to see because everybody knew big blocks of silver didn't rest in stone posts in 
you know, yards in Massachusetts. The silver was elsewhere. It was out in Nevada or California. Now, the next story is about a Pennsylvania farmer. This Pennsylvania tire, this farmer tired of uh, farming. And he wrote to his cousin in Canada about coming to work for him. And he said, well, I can't hire you. You know nothing about the oil industry. So he made it a point of learning about the oil industry. He started from the second day of creation and how God created all the plant life and determined how uh, coal and oil deposits are made. And he studied it. He wrote to his cousin again and said, I know all about it. And he said, well, then come on. The man, according to the county record, sold his farm for $833. Even money. No sense. He'd scarcely gone from that farm before the man who purchased it went out to arrange for watering the cattle. And he found that the previous owner had arranged the matter very nicely. There was a stream running down the hillside there, and the previous owner had gone out and put a plank across that stream at an angle, extending across the brook and down edgewise into the water. The purpose of the plank across the brook was to throw over to the other bank a dreadful-looking scum through which the cattle would not put their noses to drink, although they would drink the water on the other side of it. Thus, that man who had gone to Canada had himself been damming back for 23 years a flow of coal oil, which the state geologist of Pennsylvania declared as early as 1870 to be valued at $100 million. The city of Titusville stands on that farm, and now those wells flow on. And that farmer, who has studied all about the formation of oil since the second day of creation, clear down to the present time, sold that farm for $833. No sense. Again, I say, no sense. <laughs> so what do we learn from these two stories? We learn that people are seeking their fortune in the wrong places. They already have a fortune that they are unaware of. So for us, the analogy is clear. Uh, we might wish for earthly ambition and success, and that's a good thing. But we can't have that be what we want the most, because what we want the most, we already have. We are just biding our time until God gives us to us. We have it in trust. Now, I want to share one more thing about inheritance. You probably have seen the bumper sticker or heard the phrase, we are spending our children's inheritance. Um, now, that's kind of rude and crude, and we would agree. Uh, Proverbs 13.22 says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. But let's not make the other error either. That money isn't theirs. That money is the person who is the testator. And so uh, an inheritance is a gift from loving parents. It's not something that your parents are required to give you. Uh, recently, we saw Warren Buffett give $30 billion of his away to Bill Gates. He didn't give it to his children. Now, his children are all in charge of like billion-dollar trusts, but yet he didn't give them all the rest of it. He wanted to go elsewhere, and so that's the right of the heir. Uh, but so too often an inheritance is underappreciated or even entirely unappreciated. That movie that I mentioned earlier, The Ultimate Gift, it's kind of about that, and it, and it portrays that very well. Um, now, there's one more irony about the inheritance that awaits us, and let me read you this. A Sunday school teacher was teaching on heaven to a class of kindergarten students. She asked them, kids, if I sell my house and my car and give all my money to the poor, do I get to go to heaven? The children in unison replied, no. She asked them again, what if I quit my job and spend all my time helping orphans? Then do I get to go to heaven? The children again replied, no. The teacher then asked the children, okay, just how do I get to heaven? A little boy in the back row slipped up his hand. Yes, Tommy, how do I get to heaven? 
You've got to be dead first. <laughs> and so that's what we have to be, right? We have to be dead first. So see, our inheritance comes to us when we die, which is kind of opposite of the way this normally works. But the testator has died. That was Christ. That was when the inheritance was purchased for us. It's held in a trust for us until our entrance into the life after this one. And so it's kind of interesting in a way. There's irony there, but there's also this core truth that we all are rich kids. We all have trusts awaiting us in heaven. And so let me uh, tell you a a little story here. Um, A friend of mine from work, uh, he and his wife have only one child. He's, they call him the miracle baby because he was born with a lot of heart defects and things, but yet he survived. But he's now 23, 24, and they live here, and I work with him at UP. And uh, every July 4th, he makes a reservation at the restaurant at, on the top of one of the casinos over here, if I'm pointing the right way, that way. Um, and uh, he has his reservation for right at sunset because what he's found is that he can go there at sunset and now his dinner costs them. That's a very nice restaurant. It costs them like over a hundred bucks for two of them. But they get a beautiful seat next to the window and they can watch the fireworks when the fireworks start up later in the evening. And so it's, you know, it's a nice, beautiful evening for him and his wife. And he's been doing it every year for like three or four years now. And uh, I, it shows ingenuity. You know, he's figured out the thing to do. But now imagine that that's us. Imagine that you've done this, that you've arranged for this beautiful dinner and it's a lovely it's going to be a lovely dinner you know one of the best meals you've ever had and so you arrive there and it's sunset and yet you know let's say you get an appetizer well no let's say you get uh, many of us that go to restaurants know you sometimes need crackers to placate the kids before the meal comes and so let's say you get crackers you get some saltines this is a comparison of the inheritances you know these saltines that you're eating at this fancy restaurant while waiting for your appetizer and your meal and the fireworks and all that, that's like Bill Gates' billions of dollars. That's just saltines compared to what you're going to have. And yet, too often, we get lost in the fact that all we can buy on this earth is that Pepsi, you know, for the equivalent of him buying that $500,000 house. And so we must realize that we can enjoy saltines while we're here and we can uh, appreciate this. And for instance, Bill Gates, billions of the saltines. We don't have any saltines, you know, so you have to make do with making up games for your kids or something like that. But that's to contrast this with what is yet to come. This beautiful meal, this beautiful fireworks, all of this is yet to come. So. Earlier, I'd mentioned a phrase a couple of times, always maintain your heavenly perspective. And so you have to work through the envy and disappointment. Uh, make sure that your will is the guardian of your soul, as Scripture commands us to do. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that your word uh, educates us in all the ways that are uh, pertinent to our souls. We know that there is a lot of wisdom in the world, Lord, that works against your word. And we pray that you would oppose that in our minds, in the minds of our children. We ask you to be with us today, to bless us in the week ahead. We pray, Father, that you would do the same for Pastor Kaiser and Jonathan, that you would uh, multiply their uh, success there on the field, that you would give them the words to say, 
that uh, you would open their minds to understand your will, that you would give them the ability to communicate clearly. We thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.